Welcome back to another episode of the White Cell Bloodline Podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Sauters, and I appreciate you joining me. This is episode 38. I got my trusty co-host, John, Kansas King, back with me again. And we got our guest this uh, episode, Brendan Graff. He's from Missouri. He's a guy I've been talking to for a while. We've been in the works of trying to get a podcast going, and we finally got it out. So uh, we talked about some mock scrapes, what we're doing for that. He's doing some new things this year. He's been doing doing them for a few years, and uh, so we talked about that. I've been doing them for quite a few years myself, and then John's doing it for the first time. So we get a bunch of different perspectives and uh, angles and things we do for our mock scrapes, which uh, one thing we're all agreeing, John's starting to believe in it, but we all think they're a very vital tool. And especially me, it's one of my favorite tools uh, in the hunting arsenal to get after these bucks, especially get pictures of, and you can actually kill them over scrapes uh, if you're doing it right and you got them in the right locations. But we talked about that. We talked about some trail cameras, what he's doing to prepare for season, and a little bit in between. But without further ado, me and John BS a little bit before we get on him on the episode. So uh, let's get to that. And appreciate you guys joining us. There it is. What's up, Gavin? What's up, brother? Hey, man, just ready to get do this. Let's let's get her going. Yeah, fucking technical difficulties. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's something, man. Yeah, I'm saying it's just so weird. I don't I don't understand it one bit. How I can join on yours and you can't join on mine. Yeah, I don't know what the hell's going on, man. It's like everything was working fine up until yesterday. Then it's like, what the hell? Yeah, it's very weird. Hopefully we get it figured out, but I think we'll still be good. Hopefully I'll be able to still download off your side and get it posted. Yeah. But uh, what you been doing this weekend? Uh, let's see. So we check, check that camera of Blake's, that Wild Game Innovations. It's called the uh, – what the heck is that thing called? The slide yeah. or something. I don't remember what it is. It's a cheaper one. But, you know, we went pulled video, that. man. Real good video. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought, man. It's not like a $30 camera, but I was like, damn, I'm impressed. So I ordered five more, dude. Hell, yeah. Like I say, I got some of the drawback boys. They, they bought some trail cameras they're going to send to me so uh, I can hang them on that Kentucky Public. Yeah, hell, yeah. So did that. And then, uh, let's see, yesterday I went out and filled – did we fill feeders yesterday? I think I did. I think I did some of that stuff yesterday. Yeah, I put out that new spot. I put a trail camera – Dude, I took your advice and I put that trail camera up in a tree, facing mm-hmm. down, you know, toward the corn, and it worked perfect because that spot is actually the spot that we got uh, all of our stuff stolen off of last year. Okay, really? Yeah, so I took my climbing sticks and I got in there, you know, shoot at least ten foot or so, put the camera all up, got it, you know, got everything set up, and then pulled the sticks back out, and I just dumped corn on the ground. Yep, and so I do that on the, my my public pieces on my. Uh, like private pieces, I still hang them probably six or seven. Now nah, probably seven or eight foot tall because I do them about as high as I can reach. Yeah, I've noticed the deer don't pay as much attention to them. Like when you have them down there at your like waist level, your stomach level, seems yeah. like they notice them. And I've had multiple pictures on this property. It's usually during the rut, and rut. It's just a passing buck, a buck passing by. So he's not used to like the cameras in these areas, and they get caught and they're like, oh shit. But if it's like the bucks that have grown up and they walk through the property, they don't give a shit. But then newer right. bucks, when they're about their head level and they see them, I've I've had multiple pictures of them getting spooked and then never getting pictures of them again. Oh wow! But we so, got some uh, we got some wild deer over here in southern Indiana, <laughs> right? <laughs> 
But that's our right. guest today is going to be Brendan Gaff. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's hard to try to pronounce people's names without yeah. like, actually hearing it. But I'm pretty sure that's who he is. He's from um, Southeast Missouri, I believe. And excited to do this one. We've been talking about recording it with him for a while. I saw he was out doing some mosh scrapes today. So we're going to talk about that, uh, talk about some deer scents, some trail cameras, and then basically just like preparing for uh, the rest of the season since we've got about a month or two months, depending where you're at. Yeah. So I think it'd be a good man if you want to send him an invite when he gets on here, and uh, we'll get it started. All right. So I think I go there. Say John's taking the like the host role today. He's got it all on his phone, so it, it's his first time doing it. Yep. So we're gonna give her a shot and see how it goes. All right. I got it sent to him. All right. Hopefully, we don't have no problems. <laughs> We've been having a lot of technical difficulties, so hopefully we don't have any more today. Yep, I'm decent with technology, but not good enough when, like, you run into bigger problems. I don't know if I can fix it. I've tried everything I know. Yeah. Like I said, man, I tried deleting it, and I tried to restart my phone, and just nothing. I did a bunch of that shit on mine, too. <clears throat> Dale, see if we can get them on here. But, man, I'm really excited to see what these mock scrapes do out here. I'm telling you what. Yeah. Exactly. You just sent us a there. Yeah. What's up, Brandon? What's going on? So man, I'm Gavin. Uh, I'll be the host, and then we got John, the Kansas King, his co-host. How's it going, Brennan? It's going. How are you? Oh, pretty good, man. I'm excited because we got some cooler weather here today, so I'm excited for that. It's hot where I'm at. Like oh, really? Three, yeah, like a hundred three today. Damn, that's hotter than here. Yeah, we had that yesterday. We had that. We had a hundred and eight here yesterday. So today it's eighty five. So really nice change. That's about 70 degrees too hot for us deer hunters. <laughs> right, exactly. But, uh, Brandon, I figured off, we'll start off with uh, just a little background on you, man, where you're from, like who you are, uh, how you got into hunting, all that stuff. Uh, my name is Brennan Graff. I'm from southeast Missouri. I've been in hunting for, I mean, as, as soon as I could walk, really, I was going with my dad. So, you know, I kind of was just bred into it. It's been a family tradition. Uh, I basically started hunting with my dad probably when I was four, going bow hunting with him and rifle hunting. And then uh, I ended up killing my first deer by 10, I want to say, pretty well as soon as you're able to shoot. And I shot my first five or six deer with a uh, 20 gauge slug. And from there, I kind of just really took on bow hunting. I shot a bow since I've been five, six, but you know, I had to get a little bit older before I was able to pull back the weight first. So, it's kind of been all bow hunting for me since then. Yeah, I'm saying I was the same way. I think I killed my first deer at 10 or 11, and yeah, I was the same way. Uh, didn't start bow hunting until I was probably 14 or 15. Just like you said, be able to pull back. I was a small kid. I was fucking five one until I was a freshman in high school, or right. as a freshman in high school. But uh, so where are you from? You from like uh, Missouri, I believe, right? Yeah, I'm around 70 miles south of St. Louis. I'm from a town called St. Mary. Okay. You got some big bucks there. John's uh, thinking about maybe heading down there if he tags out early in Kansas. Yeah, we do. I mean, it's kind of overlooked as far as big bucks go, I think. But uh, there definitely is good deer around here. Hell yeah. So I saw today, one thing I want to talk with you about is mock scrapes. I've been wanting to talk about that. I've had people asking me questions because we're starting to put those out now. But uh, what's like your process with like mock scrapes and like, why do you do it? Uh, 
I think it just kind of gives a reason for the deer to be there. I mean, rather than just putting a camera on a trail, you know, and obviously if you have a mock scrape in the right position, you're probably going to pull what mature bucks are in the area to you. So that's kind of why I've always done mock scrapes. I've probably ran them for five or six years now. Um, I think I've had the best luck on them in the last two or three years, but yeah, I mean, as far as inventory goes, it's good for that. You know, what bucks are in the area, but it also helps you, you know, condition deer almost. This is the first year that uh, I've actually purchased Troy Pottinger's scrape mix. And uh, I've been talking with Troy a lot. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but uh, he's kind of the scrape hunting God and he's been giving me some pointers and stuff. So, uh, kind of a new method this year. And I think it's already paying off as far as trail cameras go. So. Hell yeah. I can say I've been doing mock scrapes for, I mean, many, many years here in the, probably the past five years, I've dove into it harder than I have in the years previous, but man, it's one of my favorite tools and it's, it honestly might be my favorite tool because a lot of misconception is people I hear talking. They think uh, scrapes only pop up and, deer only hit these scrapes in like late October as the rut's heating up. But that's no, absolutely not. not. Yeah, no. I say they're hitting them year round. Yeah, definitely. The licking branches more than anything, you know, you might not, they might not have the dirt pulled up, but yeah, uh, they definitely put that preorbital scent on there year round. Yep. Yep. I agree with that. And yeah, and I think next week or the week after we're going to start putting a bunch of them out. Like when I started doing them, I, I minimized them. I only put a few of them on the property, but the more I'm doing them, uh, the more is the better, I believe. Because if you can get that deer to stay on your property, especially if you have these smaller properties like the ones we're hunting, if you can get that deer to hit just two or three of those scrapes and stay on your property for five minutes longer, that's all the difference to a bow hunter. Absolutely. So uh, you said you're using Troy Potter's scent, right? Yep. Like I say, I've heard his name. Uh, I haven't really looked into him too much. What's like, uh, what what style sense does he have? I, I saw your picture or your. Uh, post. I mean, he's a he's kind of a diehard bow hunter, and his concept is trapping whitetails. So he's pretty well setting these mock scrapes with buck fever synthetics, and uh, he's you know strategically placing them to condition deer to come to them to be able to intersect them on their way to that scrape. Or, you know, just give them a reason to be around to be able to kill them. Yeah, I agree with that because I have cameras, like, right now on public land, found some community scrapes, and those deer are hitting them every single day. Same on my private pieces, but it's crazy how often they'll hit them. I mean, every deer that walks by there, very rare they don't walk up and at least smell their branches, lick them a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to go in and walk us through what you do as far as, you know, what you do to make a scrape and stuff, this is actually my first year doing it. So I'm really kind of wanting to pick your brain a little bit, uh, kind of see how you set them up and where you're setting them up at. Okay. So previously I'll walk you through how I was doing it compared to what's new this year. And I've had past success doing it, how I did do it. My uh, last year's deer was actually conditioned to coming to a mock scrape and he was somewhat on that pattern when I killed him. So, I can't completely put it on my mock scrape, but I definitely gave him more of a reason to be there. Uh, so previously, I would pretty well just pick. So we we kind of have a prevailing westerly wind. So I would try to pick out mostly the west side of bedding areas 
and put my mock scrapes there just because I knew that steady wind would be blowing into those bedding areas for them to get a little bit better of a smell on it. Now, I wouldn't put all my mock scrapes there, but I did place most of my cameras and mock scrapes on that west side of bedding just so that wind could take into there and they could catch on to it quicker. But, uh, I mean, I'll pretty well start by uh, sometimes I'll find an old community scrape. You know, I'll find a hub system or whatever and find a good community scrape with multiple licking branches. And I'll actually cut out one of those licking branches and bring it to wherever I'm wanting because that's already got, you know, years of history of preorbital stored in that branch. And I will utilize that. Now, that's not every mock scrape I make, but that's definitely a good way to get it going quicker. <clears throat> and then previously... I would just, you know, mount that to a tree or find an existing branch in a good spot. Uh, I, I don't like to do it with my boots. I'm not a huge, huge scent freak, but any scent I can minimize, I definitely do. So, I, you know, I'd get a stick or whatever. I'd clear out a good size area. I mean, I'd, I like to make mine big and noticeable. I don't want just okay. a dinner plate size. I definitely give them something to smell and look at. And uh, previously, before this year, I would just use my own urine in it, you know, just peeing in. That's honestly worked absolutely perfect. Uh, apparently, there's no difference between our urine and deer urine. Um, and I definitely did that for years, and that worked well. This year yeah, – I, I got a bunch of buddies that pee in the thing. For me personally, like I've heard that. I've, I mean, I've never heard of like deer getting spooked by it, never like coming back. Most people, they definitely get pictures. But my thing is – I can smell human piss and I can smell a deer piss and I can tell the difference. So I don't understand how deer can for how good their nose is. That's my whole thing on the, the pissing and scrapes. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but the deer got to be able to notice, I think, personally. Right. I think it's kind of a concept of after it aromatizes, I think it all becomes yeah. the same the same deal yeah. after time. The pneumonia. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've, I can't say that it hasn't steered deer away, you know, because obviously trail cam data, you wouldn't really know if you pushed them away. But if you'd yeah. keep my Instagram and go back a little bit, that buck I shot last year, I got a little post on him with several different cameras and every mock scrape he was coming to there. I th and I also think that uh, a couple of those mock scrapes were existing, existing scrapes pretty close. So, I mean, just the exposed dirt could have been enough to get him to come over and check it out also. Yeah. yeah, like you were saying, I like breaking up the ground, honestly, in about two or three foot, because deer are very visual. If they can see that, they're going to be intrigued. They're curious animals. They're going to want to walk up to it. But uh, I've also pissed in my scrapes. Like, if I'm hunting and I got to piss, I'm going to go – if I'm walking by one of my scrapes, I'm pissing in my scrape as well, too, though. I do that. Well, this is good to know because, like I said, this is my first year doing it, and I've kind of – I've just started doing it, and I've kind of right there at that dinner plate side. So that's good to know because I didn't know that, that, you know, the deer being more visual and stuff to maybe make that scrape a little bigger and give them something to kind of look at. Yeah. Do you agree with that, Brendan? Visual is very important when you're putting these up? Yeah, definitely. I think if you do got a big buck in the area, I think that, I mean, not that it's a factor or anything, but I think if he was, you know, heading to check one of his scrapes or, you know, just heading to a destination food source, and he catches a glimpse or smells a scrape, and he wants to take a peek at it. And I think that if it's not visually appealing, I don't know if he's going to, you know, bat more of an eye at it to where if you got half a car size, half a car hood size scrape there with multiple licking branches, you know, I think that's just a little bit more appealing to him. Okay. Yep, I agree with that. But, uh, yeah, go back through your process. Sorry to interrupt. No, you're good. So, I mean, that's basically what I did previous years. 
And I never had, besides last year, I never, I can never say that I killed a deer on the way to the mock scrape. I think I definitely had some good trail cam inventory for it, but most of my bucks have came from just, you know, patterning from bed to food or during the rut, you know, and uh, just being in a good pinch. But this year, I think it's already getting a, going a little bit different for me because I purchased that uh, mix from Troy and I got some uh, insight from him on how to do that. So on this small piece of private that I'm hunting, and this is pretty, I wouldn't say heavily pressured private, but there's public that I kind of get around on sometimes. And I think that this private is more pressured than that public, you know? So, I mean, it's not, oh, yeah. it's the same piece that I killed the buck on last year. Uh, I have some historical data on some bucks there. Like I know what bucks I seen, you know, visually early season last year. I know what bucks were three last year and will be pretty good four year olds. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of trying to use historical data where I could strategically use these mock scrapes to see if these deer are around, if I could get inventory on them. Because yeah. la last year in early October and late September, I passed a couple of these three-year-olds and I made, I made a mock scrape. This was actually on the east side of a big uh, bedding area, kind of pretty close to where I passed those deer at. And the first two bucks that showed up were both of those deer as four-year-olds and they look a lot better. And they, uh, you can, I, I didn't have it on video mode. It was just pictures, but you could tell in the burst of pictures, they didn't know what was, I mean, they came to check out that scrape and when they found it, they didn't know what was going on. They were like, who's in my area? I don't know this mm -hmm. smell. You know, you can see it. Their ears are perked up. They're looking behind them. They're looking every which way, you know, they're working it. They got their antlers up in the licking branch. So I think that uh, they're definitely going to be revisiting that scrape a lot more now. Yeah, and uh, we want to backtrack just a little bit. Like you were saying, one of the most important things I think for placing mock scrapes is if you have that historical data. Like if you can remember back in November where that real hot scrape is, where like you've seen them where, I mean, it's like four scrapes combined into one, just huge, like you're saying, like a car hood. And if you can remember that, it won't be there this time of year, but just, just remember where it was, and that's where I like making a mock scrape because they're obviously going to hit it during the rut, and you get them kind of pre-programmed to hit it especially these does because uh, I think the does are really important too. You get these does to hit it, then uh, once, once the rut heats up, they're going to walk in there, they're going to piss in that scrape, trying to get them bucks to let them know they're in heat. Absolutely. I think that historical data is probably the most overlooked, you know, concept of hunting that can lead to your success because I've seen time and time again, anywhere from, you know, late August into early September, you know, from going to summer to fall range, a lot of these deer are doing the exact same thing they did in previous years within, you know, three days of when they did it. So, yeah, I mean, I've seen, like last year, I've seen multiple bucks end of October, you know, just, just when everything, that first doe is going to be coming in soon. Uh, I've seen those deer around, you know, that time frame. So I think if I were to put a mock scrape in that area, that might give them more of a reason to come within that time frame, you know. Yeah, you said your property's small. Like, uh, what's how big is it? Uh, this one's around sixty-five. I have multiple different places I run around. Uh, I really like to. I like new challenges more than anything. So, I mean, if yeah. I if I kill a buck or two on one property, I'm more than likely looking for another place to hunt. So, uh, this is this was one of my buddy's properties. I turkey hunted it a couple years ago, and I just got permission to deer hunt it this past June, or not this. June, but like the previous June of 21. So I scouted it that summer. It's only 60, I think right at, right at 60 acres is what it was. So I was able to, uh, 
scouted through the summer, and I was able to capitalize on that buck there. But his grandma has a farm that's probably three miles from that that's closer to 550 acres. So I've been kind of running around that a little bit, and I had a lot of close calls late season last year. So that's probably my my task for this year. Yeah, yeah I, say I like the new challenges. We're diving into public land hard this year so we can get that whole new challenge of hunting public land. Uh, we're getting out a month earlier out in Kentucky, so that will be awesome as well. Like Nothing better than getting new challenges because if you get stuck in your ways, you're just going to get the same result, you know? Yeah, definitely. I'm running some cameras on public. Uh, I think that if – I got some public kind of here closer to the house where I live because it's about a 45 minute drive for those private properties. So, I mean, if I don't have too much time to get away, I'll run around some public here and hopefully I get some good trail cam data there. 100%. But uh, yeah, let's go back to that mock scrape. Like what are the scents that you got from him? Like uh, what types are they? You know, he doesn't, he doesn't share what is his personal mix because, you know, that's what makes it his personal mix. It's okay. buck fe- it's buck fever synthetics. I know that he uses the forehead gland. You get, you would get two bottles if you purchased it from him. One's the forehead gland and then one's the scrape dirt. So, okay. I mean, they come in two different squirt bottles. So I'm not 100% sure what uh, he has in each one, but I mean, yeah. he's, he's time tested and, he he's the man when it comes to that stuff. You definitely need to look into him. Yeah, that sounds familiar because I've been using uh, Cook's Fatal for years and years. We're like uh, partnering up with them, and they got uh, pre-orbital scent stick. That's what I use for the licking branches. That's just like your your eye duct scent right there, and then their forehead and stuff. And then they got a couple other scents like uh, just their normal dominant buck. I'll spray that on the ground, and then they got like a calming scent, and I'll spray that on the limbs as well. But uh, so what are you doing? You got you pick out this scrape tree, like uh, what's your process of making it into a mock scrape? If it is a mock scrape, or if you find a scrape like a community scrape, what are you doing for that as well? So if I'm just gonna make my own scrape, I'll find an area that I know is being heavily traveled, or like we talked about, you have some historical data with some bucks, or even you know just on the downwind side of a bedding area or the upwind side, you're trying to get some inventory there. I'll pick out my tree and let's just say it has a good licking branch. Uh, I'll get a stick. I normally don't like to do it with my boots. I'll clear out that area. You know, I normally do three, three and a half feet, probably. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll get that cleared out under that licking branch. And then I'll, I normally take most of the leaves off the licking branch and I'll snap, I'll snap the, uh, little twigs, you know, and the small things that come off it just to make it look like they've been chewed on. I might take a bigger part of it and twist it. You know how you can twist a branch or whatever. I'll twist it around a few times like it's been worked. And then I'll take my uh, mixes and I'll spray the branch real good with the forehead gland. And then I'll go and do the same thing with the scrape dirt. That's pretty well just how I build a fresh one if there's not an existing scrape. Hell yeah, that sounds good. John, you got any questions? I know you've been quiet for a second. You're the new guy doing this. Oh, uh. I really like that idea of, like you were saying, taking an existing licking branch and then hanging it over there, over the scrape because they kind of do have that scent and that familiarity with it, I guess. So I really like that idea. I think I'm going to give that a shot. Yeah, and it's really it's really not too hard of a thing to do, you know, just snipping a branch off and either taking, you know, just drill with you and running a screw into it or tying right. it up or whatever. People underestimate it because, you know, deer smell hundred times better than we do and they know you know what kind of sense in that branch when we don't so 
that, that definitely gives you kind of a head start on the scrape process if you can do that. Now, kind of a question is, I, out here in western Kansas, a lot of times we don't have trees um, close by. You know, we've got – here's legal debate. So we've got some feeders and stuff set up, but we're kind of pretty much out in the open. What would you suggest to somebody doing something like I am of getting one started? Are you going to set a post in the ground and then just just them to it? Yeah, so where I'm at, we have all kinds of different, you know, topography. We got trees, we got flats, you know, we got bluffs. So, I mean, I really haven't had to experience anywhere that didn't have a lack of trees. I went, I did go to Kansas a couple years ago with a buddy and we went to Alton, Kansas. Oh, Um, yeah, far from me. Yeah, so we went, we went there and that was a, uh, Public, we went on walk-in public land there. He drew a muzzleloader tag, and I was just along to kind of try to help him out. And we we kind of faced that scenario where there wasn't really many trees to hang in. The only trees were creek bottom, you know, and then uh, they weren't very big either. So I haven't had to work with that too much where I'm making mock scrapes and that. But if I did, uh, just on the fly adjusting, I would definitely probably find – a smaller tree maybe, or like a sapling of some kind and maybe, uh, you know, dig a hole and plant it like a post and then maybe make my own licking branch off that. Or like you said, actually take a post out there somewhere and put a licking branch on it. I'd say that's probably your only two options. I know there are scrapes that don't have a licking branch, but they're definitely not as prominent as anything with the licking branch because that licking branch is what pretty well holds all your power. Right. Yeah, John, for me, I've done that many times. Like on the farm property, uh, the majority of the property is that big farm field, the bean field this year, but that last about 10 yards is grass where the farmer turns his vehicle around and stuff. So what I do is like he's saying, go get a sapling. What I like the best is a hardwood. You probably harder for you to find hardwoods than it is us, but you find some type of oak or just one of them uh, trees that are harder and they'll keep their leaves on there for a long time. But I don't like getting a huge one. I mean, no bigger than a baseball as the biggest, but I like finding them smaller trees, honestly, about the size of a, a soda can, maybe a little smaller. And like he said, you dig that in the ground and uh, you want you want a few different sizes. That's what I like, different uh, where the, the, the limbs are hanging in uh, different spots. And I like breaking the limbs, twisting them just so it looks like a buck or a doe's walked up there and bit the limb a few times. Yeah. But uh, I like doing that, and I like keeping the leaves on because I've had my scrape trees keep the leaves on for a full year, and I just keep those on because it holds the scent for me. I've noticed a little better. But, yeah, if you find them open spots, like I think that's one of the best spots you can put a, a – I call them a mock scrape tree. Is you, you put it where you want to. It's very visual. If it's a big open field or it's a corn field, and you got this right in the corner of it because that's what we do. We put them a lot in the corners. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, those bucks see that from 300 yards, and it's, especially if it's new, and then they'll get a whiff of that scent. And we did that on the farm, and I've done it on multiple different properties. And, I mean, every single shooter we had was daylighting on that scrape multiple times last year. Yeah. Yeah, but, you, um, you would definitely have more knowledge than me as whenever it comes to that because a lot of where I hunt, uh, I hunt some – farmland but most of it's big woods and stuff so i haven't had to face that too much so that's not really my expertise there yeah yeah so what's like a good location you're looking for these spots to put a scrape uh i mean just really where you'd find a community scrape also so if you have something with topography obviously you got your main ridge and then you got these little fingers that come off that normally run east and west so they make these little bowls you know they're called hubs 
So down there, either on a shelf, like going down that ridge or in the bottom, you can normally find a big community scrape. And if there's not one there, that's a good place I would put one already. But if there is one, I might put some scent in it, you know, with, I'll put a camera on it and use some of my, uh, some of my scent I bought from Troy. But a lot of the time, if I do find a good scrape like that, I might just put a camera on it and leave it be and see what's already coming there. But yeah, I think that, uh, in those, in those hubs is pretty well what I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah, man. I, I, they're just awesome because they only get better. You put them out right now, the deer are going to hit them. But once that rut starts heating up, especially the pre-rut, then every single buck is checking scrapes, making scrapes. And they're a super hot zone. Like that Halloween time going into those first couple of weeks of November, if you're not hunting scrapes, uh, you're not hunting the right place in, in my eyes. Yeah, definitely. So uh, what's a couple tips for, like, people like John getting into these scrapes that are new? Like, what's some things you've noticed that have, like, helped you uh, make these scrapes more realistic or just get these deer to hit them better, if that makes sense? Uh, I would definitely somewhat be cautious of what kind of scent you're leaving around. You know, I, uh, I'll typically wear rubber boots, and I, I don't believe in any scent rituals, really. Um, but I would – I definitely try – to reduce my sweat so i mean if i'm gonna go make mock scrapes i'll normally go in the morning or a day that it's not super hot because i don't want to go in there stinking if i don't have to um so i mean i would definitely take that in consideration maybe using a stick to clear the ground instead of like your boot to uh minimize some scent there so i mean as far as i always do is use a a stick and then chuck that stick as far as i can yeah and you know just uh just some common sense things when it comes to it, you know, don't give the deer more of a reason to know that you are there than you really need to. Yeah. And uh, so you're putting trail cameras on them. How are you hanging these trail cameras? Uh, 99.9% of the time I'm going one stick high. So I'll normally just grab one of my, uh, you know, sticks for my mobile setup and I'll go uh, probably I'm six, one, probably two, one to two feet above my head so pretty high and i don't really have any mounting brackets right now i got a couple but i got way too many cameras to have one for each one so i might shove a stick behind that camera to angle it down or i'll try to find a tree that you know branches out for it to face down so i mean typically seven to eight feet but i've it kind of it's just situational too i've had some that i hang at normal waist height because i think that uh the tree is real thick and it hides it well. And I've had some that I've hung four inches off the ground before, you know, pointing up. Okay. Okay. I've never tried the pointing up thing, but yeah, you get in them thick spots or something where it's just that style of tree. You can't really hang it higher and you want to get them better pictures. But yeah, when you do hang them higher, me and John were talking about this right before you got on it. They just don't notice it as much because in the past I've hung them low and I've had new bucks mainly during the rut. They come running through and they see that you can see them spooking in the picture and then never get a picture of them again. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's situational, but for, for the most part, I'd say, you know, 90% of the time I'm hanging them right up there in that seven to eight foot range, you know, just where I can reach or if I could take a stick, it might even be higher than that. You know, if I'm getting up on a stick, it might be eight to nine foot, but I feel, I feel like there's almost a dead zone in there for deer. You know, I don't know if you guys listen to any of the DeQuisto stuff too much, but Cody talks a lot about hunting in that first canopy in between eight to 12 foot. And mm-hmm. I really, I really abducted that method this past year. 
and I got picked out so much less than when I've been hunting 17 foot plus. It's absolutely insane. Yep, I've noticed that one of my best spots stands only sitting about 12 foot, but it's like sitting on a limb and it's in canopy like you're talking about. And I've had multiple box bucks walk legit under my stand, and I'm only sitting 12 foot up in the in the air. Yeah, it's almost like they look straight and they look way up in the air. You know, I think if you're camoed in that first canopy, I'm not saying it's for sure better, but I mean, I definitely did not get picked off too much this year. I shot my buck this past year at uh, probably seven and a half feet. I mean, I can easily, I can easily touch the stand from where I was standing at. Yeah. So where I went and scouted this Kentucky public, it's so damn thick. Like most areas you're going to hunt on the ground or you're going to be hunting like that six, seven foot off the ground. And I've, I've never really had to deal with that. So it's going to be a fun challenge to do that. But, um, well, so that's good. Of, you know, I've never, uh, you know, I've never heard of that, you know, but once, you know, you're saying that and I'm thinking about it, I'm like, you know, he's kind of right because I think we've almost been, you know, told that the higher you get in the tree, the better off you are. But I think I'm, I'm with you on that, that, you know, I don't think that's the case. You know, and, and, and what it is, is they're skylining you. You know, so if you get too high in the tree past that first canopy and you move, your silhouette is absolutely highlighted against the sky. You know, you might, especially when the leaves start falling a little bit more in the early season, I think you can get away with more movement up higher just because you got more leaves and, you know, shit above you to kind of block out your silhouette moving. But they definitely skyline you a lot easier. Yeah, and you got to think these deer, especially like these more mature bucks, once they get to that five, six, seven-year-old range, they've been hunted for that many years. They've seen who knows how many hunters. And most guys are hunting about that 20-foot range. So they're kind of programmed to look up at that that range because I've been on some properties where these super high pressure, I swear the deer are looking up in trees. And I've had stands and been in people's places where the deer come around and they're they're 100% looking in that tree to see if somebody's in it when they're coming by. Yeah, absolutely. My dad has told me the same thing. You know, he uh, he hunts a little bit now, but he'll he'll tell you, you know, back whenever I was, you know, young hunting, 15, 16, he said deer didn't look up. You know, they've evolved to do that just from being hunted over time, you know, evolution. Now they're starting to realize their predators are up higher. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, just weird get off topic for a second talking about scrapes like one thing i've noticed that's good like you were talking about how you take those uh those limbs down and you put them where you you want to i also like find where those scrapes are like those community scrapes and then just uh making them look more pretty if like that limb's hanging a little high i like getting a zip tie finding a good hardwood branch or a, one, a branch that you got in the area that the deer prefer and hanging that a little lower just right there and you know, making it almost vertical. And I've had great success doing that. If you just kind of spice up a good scrape already just to make it that much better, if that makes sense. Yeah, if I if I found a community scrape, uh, I a lot of the time I'll just leave it as is if it looks pretty tore up. But if it mm-hmm. kind of looks like, you know, they might not be using as much as I'd hope, I might spray it with some stuff. But I've, I've never personally – dug into a community scrape you know with the stick or put an extra branch so i mean that that might be something to look into i just i haven't you know uh toyed with a actual existing scrape like that yet yeah i'm say we noticed one last year right in uh, late october and you uh, you could tell it was a scrape and it didn't get hit too well and we didn't put scent on it yet but i added that hardwood branch it's still there to this day and they're still hitting it but i sprayed that scent and i mean uh, probably the next day definitely the next day some does were hitting it but 
we had uh, like on that farm property we had three major scrapes. One was on the corn, or I would say two major scrapes. One was on the corn, and then one was back there, uh, uh, right off like a logging road, heading back towards that power line. And um, those two, I mean, both of those spots had multiple, multiple pictures of all of our shooters during daylight hitting them randomly. We just couldn't time them in the right time to be there. John, uh, what are you thinking, boy? Man, I don't uh, – you know, I'm just trying to take in all this advice and stuff, just kind of wrecking it in my brain of, you know, what I need to do and what I need to try, you know. You know what I'm saying? There's so many different things you can do, and there's so many that work. Like, there's so many sand companies. He's talking about that guy who – I've heard of him. He knows what he's talking about. I've used Cook's Fatal for years. we got them guys around us that uh, use this local scent, and they've all had good things. I just think if you get these – a scent company that's not your your tinks or one of them big manufacturers that's just pumping out scent. They're not that fresh. But if you get it from an actual like a a deer farm where it's it's more fresh, CWD fresh, it's uh this year's deer and stuff like that compared to those older stuff. Cause like when I started, I used to always use like a hunter specialty scrape mix. I use that for years, but I just think it's a it's a whole it's a game changer if you can just any of these bigger scent companies that are just doing the fresh scent, you can't really go wrong with it. Right. You know, like we were talking, Gavin, you know, I have never had scents really work too well for me uh, where I'm at, but I've always been using, you know, like your Walmart Tink 69 and stuff like that. That's probably been on the shelf for five years. So getting these smaller companies, I think with this fresher stuff, I think is kind of a game changer. Yeah. I mean, I've been using that. I use cold blue. That was my favorite growing up when I was a little kid, use that for years and years and years. And I never, like, I probably had a, if I thought real hard, I could think of a hunt, but never, like, did it. And it was just like, yeah, this is what killed the deer. It worked so good. It brought the deer in. But since I've been using that Cooks, that fresher, uh, that scent, I mean, I've had remarkable things, mainly trail cameras. I've killed a, a deer or two over scrapes. But, I mean, just the trail camera data you get from these scrapes, it, it's unbelievable. If I could tell you how many times I've made a scrape, put the scent out, and then that night a big shooter buck that I've never seen shows up and on that uh, scrape, I'd have quite a bit of money because it's happened many times. You know, I've never been big on scents at all. I mean, especially it took a lot of convincing, you know, listening to podcast Troy's done and just listening to him talk about it, you know, his expertise and the amount of knowledge he had on it to finally get me to give it a try because I've just always been a person that I would rather have the element of surprise, you know, in my arsenal. I almost, I didn't really use too much like dopey growing up or anything like that, especially here as of late, because I've always erred on the side of caution where I'm not going to give the deer any more reason to know I'm there other than, you know, I'm already leaving my scent. You know, I, I'm already making a little bit of noise. I don't, I don't know exactly what's in that bottle. So I'm almost going to, you know, stick to my, gut on cutting him off rather than let them know or try to bring them in with an attractant scent because you know i remember doing that with my dad my dad was kind of he bow hunted but he was also kind of a you know orange army rifle hunter and i remember doing that you know with him growing up and we i've never seen anything good coming from it i've uh i really don't even call too much either i definitely don't blind call i've had some luck with rattling uh i've brought i've uh seen deer and been able to bring them in with contact grunts, you know, and then just like snort wheezes and stuff. But as far as scents and like calling and stuff like that, I've just kind of been a person to sit and wait really. Yeah. It sounds like what that John's more of John style as well. I've always been 
the type to use anything I can uh, in your arsenal to help you better. Like like I said earlier, though, those old scents, they didn't work that great. But ever since I've been using this Cooks, man, I've had nothing but good things for it. And, uh, like, early season, you use different scents because right now these bugs aren't going to have the testosterone in them. So I'm using that preorbital on the licking branch. I'm using uh, just a num- normal dominant buck here, and so it's more of a mature buck, his piss. I'm spraying that, and uh, he, he's got these little nozzles you can screw on so you can spray it, and you don't waste as much scent. It just sprays it so it gets the scent on there better, in my opinion. And I'll squirt that, and then he has uh, this, like, bedding scent. It's like a calming scent, and he's got that in the stick as well, or he's got the spray. And I'll get the spray, and I'll spray the limbs a few times with that. But then once uh, the rut starts heating up, come about mid-October, I'll transition those to a rut and buck scrape. That's when these bucks are getting this testosterone. I'll spray that rut and buck scent into the ground, and then they'll have like a dominant buck or a rut and buck scent stick too in a preorbital. So I'll usually stick to the preorbital for the branch, but I might spray a couple uh, sprays of that on the branch. And then I'll also, right when the rut's like actually heating up about uh, – maybe Halloween at the very earliest, but going in those the first couple of weeks of November, I'll start spraying uh, uh, doe estrus and like uh, hot doe sand in that because that's what the, the does are doing naturally. They're, these does will walk up to these scrapes and they'll piss in them because it's like, I, I've told John this before, uh, scrapes are like a Facebook for deer. They do that to get a lot of information to see what's going on in the area, see who's in the area. And uh, you got that, that hot doe scent and that buck smells that. He's going to be searching for that doe. In my opinion, I've done that in the years, and you can ask Dylan. I've been doing it on his farm property that uh, I share, and I hunt that with him. And he's got hundreds and hundreds of pictures of these mature bucks, these big bucks, all these does, young bucks hitting all these scrapes we put out. So, I mean, it works, and they don't get spooked. And usually, when I put these scrape trees up, the deer tear them down. I put that one up like end of October last year, I think, and then they were hitting that until season was over. And then after season in January, a buck we call Curly, he actually was still had that testosterone. He ripped it and tore that scrape tree down after season was even over. Wow. You know, Gavin, I like that you say that because it really just shows like, you know, for people like you, John, there's more than one way to skin a rabbit. You know, you've always erred on the side of, you know, using sense to your advantage, where I've always been more of the person you know, I, I didn't necessarily know what exactly was in the bottle, so I'm going to rely on my homework to try to cut them off. So, I mean, yep. you just – it's kind of one of those things you've got to find your expertise, and whenever you find something that works for you, you just <laughs> got to stick with it because, I mean, scrapes are a very good thing because it's a very good in-between ground. It's not like you're putting out dough and heat expecting a buck to just randomly come to you, but, you know, you it definitely has an attractant factor without getting too crazy with sense either. Yeah, but I think that's the most important thing is just not being stuck in your ways as well. Like, obviously, you're going to have what you like the most. But I like doing this podcast, hearing from guys like you, getting your perspective. And then when I find things I like, I'll try different things that you're doing and then just add that to my arsenal and just build myself to, up to be the best hunter I, I can be because I'm not the best. I want to take everything I can from everybody I learned to become the best hunter I can possibly be. That's the great thing about podcasts. I mean, I've – you can you can listen to any podcast. I mean, I've listened to so much Andy May and Jake Bush and Troy Pottinger and, you know, uh, Johnny Stort and all of them guys and just taking in as much information as I possibly can. But there's no substitute for experience. Yeah, I've put a couple hundred miles boots on the ground, you know, the last few years really scouting, you know, whitetails 365 days a year for me. So it's like there's no substitute for experience. You can listen to anybody, you know, talk about yeah. it. But until you take those 
real life scenarios and apply it to yourself, you know, and I'm still learning and growing every single year, you know, every single time I step out in the woods, I learn something new. And that's why I like talking to new people and listening to guys older than me, you know, like Troy and like Andy, because they're, you know, obviously way more experienced than I am. And I can take something from that. And I think that's the biggest part of being a hunter. You got to be able to adapt on the fly and, you know, be situational. Yep, I, I agree with that 100%. Like, take what you can from them, but like you said, boots on the ground is most important because I've got some shit because we're out there in the summer heat going scouting Kentucky because we're not too far from most of the chunks. We're within an hour. And people are like, oh, that deer sign don't mean nothing. I'm like, yeah, the deer are going to switch to fall. But if you can find where these deer are at, you find where these major trails are, and uh, you find where these does are congregating, you find some food sources. Like, we found a big-ass persimmon grove on this public land. That's the first time I've ever found it, like, a bunch of different persimmons and if we wouldn't have been scouting you wouldn't find these little things and i think it all adds up because yeah summer the deer in their summer ranges ball bucks will move to their fall ranges but if you find major trails especially in the rut them bucks are going to be going down the major trails right off those major trails looking for does yeah definitely people see i get a lot of people say the same thing or i overhear it and i'm not one to butt in and tell them where they're going wrong but the thing is everybody complains about they get all these big deer on camera during summer they disappear you know they're moving to their fall range but your Mm -hmm. problem is they don't anticipate the switch because there will be a switch you know whenever they start uh that testosterone rises and they start shedding their velvet they're going to go from their summer to their fall range and 99 percent of the time they're going to in the midwest they're going to acorns you know so i mean i have cameras that i don't even expect to get a deer on until late August, early September, when those white oaks start dropping, you know, like I, I might have a camera dead all summer, then all of a sudden beginning September, here's all those shooters, but they're not even on the cameras they were on all summer because I anticipated that switch. So, I mean, definitely wherever you're, wherever you're at, you need to anticipate that. I know Kansas is big with the bur oaks. Uh, so, you know, whenever we were in Alton, we really keyed in on those bur oaks. Uh, I mean, they, we we went on a scouting trip, then we went back a couple weeks later on the hunting trip. The scouting trip, we uh, the beans were green, so all the deer were hitting that. But when we came back, uh, that bean field was brown, and they were all in the acorns. You know, yeah. so I mean, you you got to anticipate that switch. Yeah, because one thing, like we got this property, and I've never really had a property where you can like keep keep tabs on bucks pretty well. But this uh, farm property we do, and we have like five main bucks that are been on the property for a couple of years, and we're starting to figure them out. We got names for them and all, but uh, they range from this year three to about five or six years old. But once that fall hits, we only have one or two bucks that stay within our property or on our property. And then uh, our biggest shooter, he disappears, and we know he goes to the neighbors. Neighbor started texting me, and he's sending us pictures of them all. He was over there all fall and stuff. And then he comes back right when season's over. But that buck, we did not get one picture of him during the season. And then, like right after the season, he came back. And then those other two or those other two bucks that they disappeared, they were like a mid ground. They would come back in the rut, come back every once in a while. But it's pretty crazy how they will change. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and the I think another big thing is just knowing your area because mm-hmm. I got. And your secondary food sources. So, I mean, obviously, most people, you know, know their destination food source. If I got a big, you know, cut cornfield or a bean field, that's obvious. They're going to be heading there at some point. But to really get, not to get off the subject of scrapes, but if you really want to locate like your, keep on talking. 
if you really want to locate your deer, you have to know your secondary food sources. So I got some properties where it's Greenbrier. I have cameras on the Greenbrier patches because that's where the deer is going to stop as, you know, kind of a uh, staging area before they go to their destination food sources. Those big bucks, you know, you don't see them pop out in open fields two hours before, you know, dark too often. They're on those secondary food sources, whether it's acorns, whether it's Greenbrier patches, you know, so, I mean, that, that's another big thing. Maybe cutting you, I, I've seen a lot of deer. You have to pattern them between scrapes, your secondary food sources and their destination food sources. So, I mean, obviously they're, they're going to get off their bed and then they're either going to their scrape or they're going to their secondary food source. And they might just, it, I don't know which one they're going to hit first, but they're probably going to hit both of those before they go to their destination. So, I mean, yeah. just anticipating that and having your cameras on either or, I think that's a good way to pattern something. So then you kind of pick your poison, you know, you're like, do I want to, is he getting out to this field, uh, you know, just right at dark so I can kill him after he leaves his secondary food source? Or do I need to get closer to his bed because he's not getting to his scrape or he's not getting to that secondary food source till dark? Yeah. I got a question for you. I've listened to some podcasts, and like, uh, I think on public land, they travel even more so sometimes when they're heading to those uh, destination food sources. But on average, how, do, how far do you think a buck's willing to travel to head to that secondary food source? Oh, I, or, that, I don't think, or that primary food source? I don't think it's anything for them to go a mile or better at night. I mean, yeah. uh, I haven't personally talked to Jake Bush any, but I do – I love listening to his podcast because he's very knowledgeable and he's a very good bed hunter. And I listen to a lot of him talking about them possibly traveling a mile and a half to two miles, you know, a night to get to their destination, just looping back into their bed. So See, I, that, that's what I've heard. And this public we've been looking at, like there's, there's a lot of uh, farm fields, bean and corn on the outskirts of the public. But on some of these properties, there's there's some on betting on the private, but the, the best betting is on public. So I'm just curious because we're just trying to catch them, especially in this early season because season opens on September 3rd. We're trying to catch them heading to that food source. I'm just wondering how far they're going to travel, how far we got to be back in the cover. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I think I think wind plays a big factor into that too on where they where they actually bed, you know, because obviously a different wind direction, they're going to bed a different spot. And depending on where their destination food source is, uh, they'll have to travel, travel further, you know, shorter. Yeah. John, yeah, I you know, yeah. I don't know, Brent, when, when you were out here at Kansas, if you'd noticed this, you know, because I know we're up around Alton, there, we're, you're about 45 minutes to an hour away from me here at Russell. But, you know, I know there's more trees, more grass and stuff up there, but where I'm at, it seems like a lot of times because when we've got that Milo and they will like the buck I shot last year, Zeus, you know, he was living in that food source, you know, and, and it's almost like the only time they come out is, you know, for water, you know, cause that Milo was so tall that they bed out there, they live out there. And the only thing that they'll move to is water. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, deer, I think, you know, a big part of hunting is definitely situational. I've hunted deer that, strictly living corn here in the midwest you know they're they're bedding there they're eating yeah. some in there and then they're moving out to bean fields at night so kind of your circumstance so i mean a deer like that definitely hard to get on so i mean you kind of just have to be a swiss army knife and adjust on the fly for those scenarios 
And I honestly believe that every deer is going to be different. I think every deer does things a little bit different because I think they have a personality to them just like people do. You know, what, what one buck does doesn't necessarily mean that this other buck's going to do the same thing, you know. They, yeah, absolutely. Always... You can you can generalize deer. You know, you can say in general a big buck is going to do this, and you're probably not too far off, but every single deer is different. I mean, just when you think you got to figure it out, that buck could be, you know, betting on the windward side of a ridge instead of the leeward side, you know, which is complete ass backwards from everything that everybody knows about it. So, I mean, it's definitely, you got to be able to adjust for that. And what's a, a really prime example of that is a deer we hunted last year. We call just like a 160-inch eight-pointer, but this deer was old. And every time we thought we had this deer dead to rights you know he's gonna come in now i mean we've got him we've got our access and everything then he'd just throw us for a complete and total loop well then once season was over we finally found out where this deer was laying where he was bedding and this is the funniest thing ever because it was basically it was just a bare bean field but where it had those big h telephone poles going through it you know there was a patch of weeds in between those poles and that's where that deer was bedding every day, where he could watch everything around him, and nobody was actually looking for him there because who's going to think that he's laying there? So, like, that deer's personality was – it was really an eye-opener for me, uh, realizing that that deer was doing that just for the simple fact he could see everything, and he knew nobody was going to look for him in that spot. Yeah, I've noticed that. I've Even on my – private pieces i've learned these bucks will doze too but these bucks will even do it sometimes they'll bed really close to these houses like where i'm hunting there's a bunch of houses and i've seen these deer bedded within 60 80 yards of a house just because they know like the one property i sent i used to park right by their house and they would legit bed about 10 or 15 yards just in this little clump of trees right next to the house but they would see me pull up so they'd know i'm coming to hunt them and then they would scoot out of there and i found that from like trail camera pictures i could see them scooting off right it was uh, and i was right when i was pulling up and stuff so um what are you doing right now brendan to prepare for this 2022 season like when's your guys is open in missouri uh september 15th okay you got an early season then yeah yeah definitely it's coming right around the corner you know we really only have uh less than two months left so I I think I'm I'm just as prepared as I have been for the last couple seasons. You know, my season really starts the moment one ends. You know, I you know a lot of people say that, but it truly does. I go from you know the last day of bow season here is January fifteenth, and then it's right into you know uh, postseason scouting and shed hunting. You know, until March April, and then from there uh, about end of May, beginning of June, I got cameras back out. So what I'm doing now to prepare for it is pretty well uh, being as least intrusive into some of these spots as I can. Once I do my, I rely on most of my scouting postseason, you know, in the spring, finding my beds and stuff, getting the beds marked on, on the map. So I know where that stuff's at, you know, uh, finding scrapes and stuff in the off season. So I do scout a little bit during the summer whenever I find new pieces, but for the most part, I get my cameras in the places that I knew uh, from spring scouting that I liked. I'll get my cameras in there, and I normally only go back every 30 to 35 days somewhere in there, a little over a month, and pull that card. And uh, 
I, I don't spend a whole lot of time in there. I get in and get out. You know, I just swap the chip, you know, throw it in my case and get out of there and then come check pictures. So that's pretty well the extent of what I'm doing to get ready for season. I got most of my cameras out. I'm running probably 25 cameras at the moment, maybe. Um, oh, yeah. Shooting. I mean, I'm, I shoot a lot this time of year, definitely. Uh, I've been guilty before in the past of getting into shooting too late, you know, waiting till mid-August, only a month before. But this year I've definitely uh, kind of been shooting my bow a little bit more. So that's kind of the extent of what I'm doing to get ready for it. And uh, hopefully I can get it done in the first week. I got um, – I'm going to be doing some out-of-state hunting in Illinois this year, I believe. So uh, hoping to get on three different deer this year. I mean, it, I'll be lucky to kill one. You know, but uh, yeah. I'll have three tags, so hopefully we get that done. You get two tags in Missouri? Yep. Oh. Yeah, that's nice. How do you get two bow tags, or do you get a bow and a gun? Well, you get two any deer tags with your archery tags, but you can only kill one buck before our rifle season, one buck during, and one buck after, but only two bucks total, if that makes any sense. Okay. So if, yeah, I, yeah. if I killed one, first week of season say I cannot kill another buck until our rifle season. But if I do kill another buck, our rifle season, uh, I'm I'm done at that point. But if I don't kill one early and I kill one in rifle, I can still kill one late. So you just have a two bag limit there. Okay. Okay. And I heard you were talking about trail cameras. Do you keep your trail cameras in the same spot year round just because like, you know, these properties or you transition them a little bit, uh, as the, the rut starts heating up? Uh, I, it's situational, you know, I, depending on how the crops are moving around, you know, depending on what crops are where, I think that's going to change how your deer move year to year. So I've only had one camera pull so far. I'm about to do my second camera pull next week. And if it's not exactly what I'm looking for next week, I'll probably move them around a little bit. Um, And then closer to the rut, if the, the rut is just as such a tricky thing because I have cameras on mostly scrapes right now, you know, so the rut is good. You know, cameras on scrapes are good during the rut also, but you to be good during the rut, you almost have to have all cell cams or something because, yeah. you know, where you're at one day might be four hours from where all the actions at the next day. So I don't, during the rut, I'm pretty well just, hunting hot sign, you know, and I kind of, I leave my cameras out just for shits and giggles, but I can't really utilize them during the rut. You know, I don't think they can play to your advantage unless you have that uh, real time feed. Maybe if you're passing a camera, check it and you might see, okay, this buck came through here this morning. He might be still cruising this ridge, but other than that, I mean, the rut's kind of just a different animal and I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the rut is hard, man. You just – you never know. With the rut, you'll see bucks in the fucking middle of the city running through people's front yards. The chaos is cool. It is. And, like, the unknown factor is cool, you know, sitting in a pinch and knowing that anything can happen at any time. But, yeah. like, I just – my – you know, my uh, my cup of tea is just doing my homework and having that confidence going into a sit that I know what deer or, you know, which deer in general – have the potential of coming, you know, to me. And I, I just like the fact of knowing like I've did my homework and he should be there because 99% of the time, if I'm out hunting, I'm, 
I'm pretty sure I'm going to get a shot at that deer. You know, I'm that confident yeah. in my sit. You know, there's a difference between being too cocky and, you know, too confident about it, but you have to have that confidence factor. So, I mean, I only really do high percentage sits. And if I don't think I can kill that deer in that circumstance with that wind, I'm probably not there. So, I mean, with the rut, it's kind of just a whole different ball game. And there's a lot more luck factor to it. And that's what I hate about it. But, you know, it's also a good thing at the same time. It can save you too. Yeah, I'm saying on my little family property, it's a small property. It's mainly a rut transition property. And uh, during the summer and early hunting season, like that first part of October, we'll probably get anywhere from five to ten different bucks. But after the rut and, say, all the bucks that come through rut, we probably get over 30, probably around 30 bucks that come through. We get 20 more, 20-plus bucks that just come roaming through our property just because – it's a perfect transition property where if they want to like cover the ground through there, they basically have to cross through my property right next to it at some point. I'm kind of like you there on the, on the rut deal. You know, I actually, my favorite time of year I think is early season because you can get kind of more of a pattern on those bucks and possibly get them before they do make that transition to their fall range because the rut, especially here. I mean, like you're talking, I mean, it's just chaotic, you know, hour to hour things change you know especially out here it's so wide open and everything you'll be driving down the road and honestly you know you'll see a 160 inch buck with a doe bed in the road ditch you know so that changes a lot so you got to kind of we do a lot of uh decoying and stuff during that time especially during the lockdown phase so that seems to be a pretty good tactic for that time of year here mm-hmm. yeah that flat kansas I mean, ground the predictability is the biggest thing for me. My favorite time is the first two weeks. I love October, don't get me wrong, but the first two weeks of season and the very last two weeks, you know, yep. January, because that bed-to-food pattern, just being able to play that chess match and know that you have your homework and have them scouted out, uh, you know, that's really where a lot of the enjoyment comes for me. I'll absolutely hunt, you know, uh, daylight to dark in the rut, and I'll love it just as much as I love any other hunt, but I mean, in a perfect world, I'm definitely really trying to get after the first week and the last week. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, shooting any buck that you're like that you're happy with, it's rewarding as shit. But you shoot a buck that you have tabs on and you've been watching for a couple months, and maybe even have a couple hit years history with them, watching them grow up, and uh, especially if you have like a main property, like a family property, like I got or something, it is so much more rewarding than just shooting some random rutting buck that comes by. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I agree. But, yeah, Brandon, man, uh, I appreciate it. I had a good time. You got a lot of knowledge, and uh, I want to pick your brain again on a podcast in the future more about, like, your, your different, like, actual hunting tactics and what you're doing in that. But uh, for people listening, man, where can they find you and, uh, like, your page and everything? Uh, Instagram, Brendan.graph. Uh, yeah, I, I post some on there. I don't got a whole lot of information on there. I'm trying to do more. Um, I, you know, I don't have a whole plethora of knowledge, but I think I'm on the right track. You know, I'm constantly learning and adapting and I'm listening to a lot of guys and getting pointers from people who are definitely time tested in it. So, I mean, just hopefully everybody listening to this and you guys, we all just continue to grow as hunters and we keep, you know, looking to evolve and don't get set in your ways and, you know, just, keep on hunting yeah and um what's like one little thing of advice first thing that pops in your head for somebody going this season like something that might help them out make them think a little different or anything that pops up your head um 
one piece of advice probably be be willing to adapt you know don't uh maybe if you're not a mobile hunter consider that you know don't a lot of people get stuck in that field edge thing you know where you're just waiting for them to come to you even if you don't have the money for a mobile setup get a five gallon bucket and go sit behind a tree close it you know and then whenever you get eyes on a group of deer get a little bit closer the next day depending on the wind you know be mobile and i promise you even if you mess it up that's where you learn i had to mess it up five thousand times before i really started picking up knowledge like that so i mean when you start to go to them and you know start making more mistakes that's where you're uh, growth comes from and your mistakes. Yep. I think there's nothing more important as a hunter than pushing yourself to do things you've never done before. Like me, I'm diving into public land hard this year. I've done public land in the past, but been doing a bunch of scouting, got cameras on their boots on the ground, figuring out these deer. And that's something new for me. I'm figuring that out. And like you said, I just think it's very important to push yourself and not get stuck in your ways. Absolutely. John, you got any last thoughts, brother? Well, man, I'm just, uh, you know, kind of thinking that, you know, for anybody listening that don't don't overlook anything um, and don't overthink yourself either. I've done that. And of course, you know, like you're saying that we grow as hunters from I think our biggest teacher is lawyers. Um, but don't overlook anything. A spot that you think that a deer might not be there or that you think there's no way a deer is going to be there. Don't overlook it. And uh, yeah. that's my biggest thing. Yeah. And I think there's a you got you got to be patient, but you also got to not be scared to go in there and kill them. I think there's a fine line in between that because I've talked to some people in the past that they they got a real big buck on camera, but they're like kind of scared to go in after him. They kind of know the area he's he's bedding in, but they're scared to jump him off that bed. And they, like you said, they're sitting on like field edges waiting on these bucks. But I think sometimes your best odds is not always like a lot of time you want to wait for the good time, but if you want to kill a big mature buck, sometimes you just gotta go mobile and get after him. And, try to get closer to him than waiting on him to come to you go to him a little bit absolutely i mean you might blow him out of the county but that's how you learn and you'll know what to do different next time you you got to get after him that's the only way to learn is uh is the dude's name dan Efall? is that the beast guy going blank dan and fault yep yeah then he's big on that he's like he's like i'm a killer man he's like you can't be afraid to go in after him he says that all the time he's trying to go after these bucks he's getting as close as he can to their bed he might blow him out of the water, but like he's hunting public land most of the time, so he's not worried about it. He'll go up and try to get on another buck. But that's his big thing is not being afraid. Absolutely. I mean, what you're doing is you're you're inserting yourself into the equation. You're giving yourself encounters. The more encounters you have, the more success you're going to end up having. Yeah, and I've read some studies where on average during the day, a buck travels like more times than not less than 100 yards an hour that's like mainly probably not the rut the rut they're traveling but yeah in those like early season parts then bucks aren't traveling that far during the day so if you're not pretty close to them you're never going to see them by the time it gets to where you, you want to be a lot of the time yep that's where it comes in being strategic with that trail cam data and like i was talking about earlier knowing your secondary food sources and what we talked about you know this whole podcast the scrapes i mean that's a big one early season definitely i mean all the way into the end of october he's probably going to a scrape and whether it's a mock scrape or a community scrape, if you know where it's at and you can get some trail cam data, you know, you just put together your wind pattern on that. And uh, that's probably your best recipe for getting him killed. Yeah. hundred percent, man. 
had a great time, man. You got a lot of knowledge. Like I said, I'm going to have to pick your brain again because uh, I know you do some mobile hunting and we're diving into that hard this year. So I have to talk to you in the future. But also, once season comes, I'm going to be doing this weekly thing where I'll be calling different guys from around the, the country to just see what the deer movement is, where the deer at, what they're feeding on in your area, just to get a little, get some people a little amped up for season and hopefully help them get their, their target buck this year. Yeah, sounds like a plan. All right, man. I appreciate it. John, appreciate you like always. And uh, until next time, I appreciate everybody listening to the White Tail Bloodline podcast.